What I want people to realize is that, like me, you don't have to have some massive exit to be an angel investor. You can get going. It is ordinary people investing their ordinary money into right. startups. So I want to help people understand that they can do that probably before they think they can, if mm. that's something that they want to do. I very much believe that last the last decade, the 2010s, was the decade of the entrepreneur. I saw this from 2010 to 2019. It was it was entrepreneurship was a, a wave and it was massive and it's wonderful. The more people do it, the better. And that can that can continue and that's great. I think the 2020s is going to be the decade of the angel investor. So people okay. are going to understand that actually they can be angel investing in some of these startups. They don't have to start them themselves, but with bits of money as they go, they can become angel investors. And if you, if 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 like me, you can pay as you go. And if you, you know, especially if you have, you know, a reasonably well-paid job. I know it's not for everyone, but if you've got a reasonably well-paid job, can you yeah. carve out 10, 20, 30k per year to invest in startups? Right. Yeah. If you can do that, and you you invest in three or four each year, then after three or four years, you've got a great little portfolio there. Right. Hi, just a quick request. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please take a minute to write a review and leave us five stars on Apple Podcasts because it helps us climb the charts and reach more listeners like yourself. And so, Matthew, you have a very interesting life. You've done so many things. And for those listening to this interview, tell us who you are. Yeah, so I am the founder of two companies right now. I suppose this is, you know, what I do right now. I run two companies. One is called Nine Others, which I've been doing since 2011. And that's an entrepreneur's network. It's a global entrepreneur's network. And it drives everything that I do. It's still kind of a side project. And I never really thought it would it would grow like it has. But it's just fantastic. <laughs> I love it. And then the other thing that I do is I run an investment syndicate for angel investors. And yeah, we can dig into both of those if you like. Right. How big is Nine Others at this point? Well, I started it almost nine years ago. So in one month, it'll be nine years old. And about 4,000 different people have been to Nine Others events. They've been hosted in 46 cities all around the world. (laughs) Crazy. You know, I started it in London because it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't exist. It was one of these things that I thought it should exist and it didn't. Mm. And I'd looked around for it and I'd been to lots of other networking events and some of them were great. Some of them weren't for me. And there was even, even in 2010, 2011 in London, there was a lot going on, but there wasn't something that just catered for the entrepreneurs. Really. There were lots of networking events going on, but they were big. The objective seemed to be to get more and more people in the room so you could make more money from the sponsors. And some of them were great. There were pitching events and there were free beer and pizza. And I was involved in a lot of these and I went to a lot of these and and helped now and again, helping to organize some of these. But what I noticed through 2011, I was working for an early stage investor. And what I noticed was that a lot of these entrepreneurs were you know, facing the, the same kinds of challenges, the same everyday business of business challenges, but they didn't really get to talk to anybody about them. Hmm. Because if they were at these other networking events or they were with their staff or their team or their investors or their board, everything had to be brilliant. I was involved in a project that was all about investment readiness. Okay, hmm. So it was a government-backed project. My company was was working on this project with a couple of other companies and we we ran essentially training to help entrepreneurs get investment Mm. so this was just in london this is 2010 2011 so it's a little while ago but it was at the beginning of this sort of latest wave of entrepreneurship and we ran workshops we ran pitch events we did mentoring all this kind of stuff and it was fantastic. It was great. It was, it was incredibly successful helping those entrepreneurs understand what angel investing was, what venture capital was, and we helped them raise tens of millions. Wow. And helped, helped hundreds of companies. So that was all great. And as part of that, I came up with the idea uh, of doing investor dinners and investor breakfasts. And I think I'd seen this in, in, 
in Silicon Valley. It might have been Jason Calacanis's Open Angel Forum. So I'd seen this come out of Silicon Valley, and I think it might have been Jason Calacanis's Open Angel Forum. Hmm. I don't know if it was, but that was around about the time. I wish I could remember if it definitely was, because I'd love to give him credit for it. Because it was <laughs> a idea, and it was it was a small, loosely curated group of entrepreneurs and investors. So these were entrepreneurs that had been through our training program. And these were investors that we knew. So we knew they had money because mm. there's a lot of investors out there that don't actually put any money in. But these, you know, So we got, the, we got these people together and we ran a dinner and we ran a breakfast and we ran a series of these. And they were just off the chart successful because the um, entrepreneurs would come along, they would pitch for a couple of minutes, there would be a bit of Q&A, and then you go to the next one and the next one, the next one. And all this in amongst a nice nice dinner environment a few glasses of wine some nice dinner you pass the food around it's all great wow. everyone gets along pound for pound it was like off the chart successful for the <laughs> for the value of the networking right. because we were, because my team were being paid you know by the government to run this program mm -hmm. we didn't get, we didn't need to get involved in the detail of any deal we just set all this up to happen. So we set mm. up the mentoring, the workshops and all this kind of stuff. And I came up with this idea of, the, of, of doing these dinners. But the thing is, right, so what happened at every one of those dinners towards the end of the night would be the entrepreneurs would kind of huddle together and talk amongst themselves. Oh. And it used to really annoy me because I'd got them there to talk to the investors. <laughs> and I was like, what the hell are you doing talking to each other? You can do that any time. Talk to the investors. They're only in the room for the next you know, a couple of hours. Anyway, it happened often enough with different people that I finally, it finally clicked what was going on. And those entrepreneurs, they were, they were just talking about the everyday problems that they had you know, in, a, in a small group. Because when you're at a big network in a group, everything's got to be brilliant. And you've got amazing growth and you've got fantastic, right. you've got fantastic, all this kind of stuff. But what they were talking about in a, in a small huddle amongst themselves was like, you know, where do you hire these people? What office space have you got? How do you get a better deal on something? Somebody might have to fire someone. They've never fired someone before. How the hell do they do that? And I just thought that, okay, there's not, there's not really the, the place that these people can talk about those issues. So that was kind of the main reason for, for starting Nine Others. And so me and someone else that worked on that, on that project, so me and, and Katie who worked on it together, we thought, okay, we've done these dinners. We love these dinners. Let's try doing one just for the entrepreneurs. We think that's a good idea. Yeah. Other people might think it's a good idea as well. <laughs> so we did. So nine years ago, next month, we organized and hosted a dinner. And the reason it's called Nine Others is because I wanted to keep it deliberately small. So I only mm. ever wanted it to be 10 people, yourself and nine other people. Because I just thought if I get tempted to try and make it for 12 people, 15 people, 20 people, 25 people. I could have a dinner for 100 people. There just wouldn't be the value there. Right. Because, and it's a few happy accidents, but because Katie and I both had day jobs, we didn't need nine others to make lots of money. So we okay. didn't need to do a dinner with 50 people every night. We wanted to do it for the right reasons for us. And that was to try and be helpful to these entrepreneurs. So that's why it was only ever 10 people. And it was, again, it was loosely curated. So we'd get to, we'd invite people that we thought were going to come along and contribute and get some value out of it. The givers, right? There's givers and takers. And yeah. if you have a dinner with lots of givers, it's going to be fantastic because mm -hmm. it comes along, they contribute to the group. And if everybody else does that, everyone leaves with way more than they could possibly imagine. Right. Whereas if you, and if it's just people who want to take, then nobody gets anything. So we filter people before they came. So we'd meet everybody and still, you know, still pretty much do meet everybody before or know of everybody before they come to a nine others dinner. And that's right. not some sort of clique. That's just to be most useful. And if we got the sense that someone was just going to come along for what they could take, they didn't get an invite. They just wow. weren't ready. Maybe, maybe, mm. maybe they, you know, maybe they can come another time, but they just weren't ready yet. And so we kind of had that cutoff point in our gut as to whether mm. someone would contribute or not. And when you were trying to reach out to founders and investors in the early stages of, say, the program that we're doing for the government, did you know all these people personally? No. We spent, I mean, I spent, I started working for that company after business school in, so it was late 2010. 
Mm. Business, business school was where I discovered venture capital. I thought, okay, that's fantastic. That's what I want to do. Eventually found my way to get a job with this early stage investor that also ran this program. And we just went out. So at least three, normally four, sometimes five nights a week after work, I'd go to networking events. And there are a lot now, but I mean, this was, this is again, 2010, 2011. It's easy to forget what it was like back then. There were quite a lot of events going on, but some of them were completely random. There's a lot of early, a lot of tech things, a lot of all sorts of other things. So yeah, I just, I just networked like hell. And you would talk to these people and then you would invite these people to these meetings. Yeah, exactly. So you go, there was a, there was a shared office space that had opened up called Tech Hub. It was a scruffy office on Old Street Roundabout, and they used to hold demo nights on a Tuesday. So if you had your early MVP, <laughs> you could stand up, up up on stage with a microphone and give a demo of it. And it was brilliant. And dozens of people used to go there because they'd have free beer and pizza and all this kind of stuff. Right. We'd just go chat to people. And as soon as you say you work for an investor, you can, are they, is that company seeking investment do they want to learn about it okay you're part of this you know part of this london government program some more details and all this kind of stuff and it was just that it was just that and it was there was no massive downside for the entrepreneurs to to, to chat to us and there's a lot of content about investment and how to get it and all that kind of stuff but back back then there was less there was a lot less and it was just really really useful and if people liked it then then they could come along and like I say, we do these, we do these pitch events, we do mentoring, we do workshops. So, mm. so for, the sake, for the sake of a morning, a morning's time, the entrepreneurs could come along. And if they were at that early stage, they'd, they'd learn a bit about the investment landscape and they'd start to build their own network. Because we, mm. as part of these workshops, we'd invite real investors in to, to share how they looked at opportunities. Hmm. And how frequently were you doing nine others in the very early stages? And how difficult was it to bring in nine people together regularly? It was really hard in the beginning, actually. Hmm. Um, again, we wanted like quality people. So the first one, Katie and I paid for and we put it on in December wow. 11. And it was really cheap. It was like sandwiches in a, in a place in, the, in, 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 in central London. And that was, our, that was our pitch. It was like, look, we, we think this is a good idea. This is what we want to do. And we invited a bunch of people that we knew would, would challenge us and ask us some tough questions. And because it was quite, you know, it, was, it was still quite unusual because we want, we thought our sense was deliberately small over a meal mm-hmm. and that the entrepreneurs should pay. And all the other networking events, like I said, was, were, were trying to get as many people there as possible. They had a bit of beer and pizza and they were sponsored. So they were free. It was quite the kind of opposite to, a lot, a lot of the other things that were going on. So that was the first one that we did. And then, and again, this is like, I keep thinking about this when I meet entrepreneurs who are launching things. We thought it's early December, everybody's going to be having their Christmas parties. Let's not do it. Mm. We'll do it next year when people are less busy. But then we soon, you know, got a grip of ourselves and thought, no, let's just do it. We only have to find nine people. So we did it. And we got all sorts of feedback and some people said that the entrepreneurs should never pay. Some of some people said we should get sponsorship. Some people said, oh, well, I would pay you know, 20 pounds for this. Some people said, oh, I'd pay a bit more for that. Some people said they should pay to be there and then split the bill so we could make more money and all this kind of stuff, all this kind of feedback, hmm. more people, fewer people, all that sort of stuff. So we took all that on board and try to figure out what sat right with us and what didn't. And then right. we, we scheduled another one for the end of January. And again, we kind of thought, oh no, everyone's going to be detoxing. It's January. No one's going <laughs> to no want to go out. It'll never happen. We'll never get anybody. But then we had another word with ourselves and thought, no, we've got to do it. So we did it and we, we put it up in Eventbrite. We put a price on it. And one of the things I've done since the start was I've made every ticket have a different price. It started at like 15 or 20 pounds. Mm. I think it was 20 pounds for the first ticket. And then it goes up by a pound each one. So this test second ticket is 21. Okay. Two, that sort of thing. So we have 10 tickets. They all have a different price. If you, 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 effectively, you get a discount if you come in early. If you come in later, well, 
there are definitely going to be people there. And right. on, the, on the Eventbrite, you can see who they are. So you can do a bit of research. And if you want to yeah. go to dinner with that person, then, then you can sign up. So at the beginning, we were doing about one, we were doing one a month. And that's what mm. we felt was, was right. We had our busy day jobs. We didn't want to saturate anything. It was quite hard to get people along because it was quite unusual. It was like, effectively, the pitch was, I want to invite you to dinner. I want, I want you to come along and share a problem, share your challenge, and I want you to help the other people. So you've got to work for your dinner. You've got to come along and you've got to be helpful to all those other nine people that are there. And, right. you, and you've got to pay for it. And that was quite different, still is, I think, because a lot of the other ones are like, please come to our event. It's free. I'll give it's you free. pizza and all this kind of stuff. Hey, you've got to listen to this bank for five minutes, but hey, you get free beer and pizza. Ours was quite different. So it was, and plus, not only that, we wanted to, even, even in that group of people who, who bought it and would go for it, we still wanted to filter through to make sure that people were really going to contribute and that there was some connection between them. It was quite hard to, to fill them up in the early days, for a few years, actually. And because what, what we'd also do is we'd, we'd, see who, we'd see who signed up, all right? So say you signed up because you'd, you, you, it clicked with you, you got it, we'd invited you along, we'd sent you the link, you looked at it, you thought, okay, great, that's going to be worth 20 quid. At the very worst, you get, you get, a, you get dinner out of it, <laughs> you sign up. And then I think, okay, so who does Abishik want to get to know? What does he do? Okay, so he runs a podcast. Okay. Who, else do, who else do I know that runs a podcast or might want to run a podcast or who's you know, a little bit ahead of him or a little bit behind him in, in running this podcast or something right. really sort of non-obvious that's connected with your world and then i'd go to them and i'd say hey you should come along to this dinner because this guy abishik's coming along and he does this podcast thing you you could really come along and help him and right. you know what you might, there are other people that are getting along and they might be able to help you so that was kind of the pitch that's their kind wow. of loosely, loosely curated bit was kind of making these connections and and that's how it went really it was a you get a few people signed up and then you go to your, you go to the other people that I knew and said, Hey, maybe you should come along to meet this person. And that's how it went. Yeah. And were all these founders from the SaaS uh, space or were they from all these different areas in business? All sorts of different areas. And that was the wonderful thing. One of the bits of feedback in the early days was, and still is sometimes is like, you should theme these dinners. Okay. We should have just for SaaS people or just mobile or just games or just all this kind of stuff. And it just didn't click with us. And occasionally things just won't and it'll just not feel right. But I wouldn't really know why. But it, was, it just felt like I, didn't, I don't want to run a themed one. I'm not sure why. Anyway, and then, I don't know, hours later, I'll go for a run and it'll suddenly occur to me. And what I like about the nine others is that they, they, they're not themed because the overall theme is really the business of business and it's solving business challenges. Actually, whether you're a SaaS business or a gaming business or you're running any sort of business, you still need to solve similar types of challenges. And this really came, came into view when we, we ran a dinner in, in one, I remember it very well, in East London, it was probably dinner number... 12 or 13 it was pretty early days and you know there's usually it's a bunch of tech entrepreneurs because that's the world that we were in there was one guy that we got to know and he ran a chain of coffee shops we got to know it we got to know him because he he opened really early so would meet before work and work on nine others for like an hour or so and then go to our, go to our respective jobs and because of that we had to get a coffee shop that opened by seven o'clock. So this, so this guy, Dan, his coffee shop opened at seven o'clock. So we knew him, we got to know him because we were always having coffee there. And, mm-hmm. and, and we said, look, you should come to one of these dinners. And he did. So he would, there was he, there was Dan running a bunch of coffee shops, starting from one when we got to know him. And he ended up with about 20. Wow. Uh, and he was the most valuable guy at the dinner because he was you could say he was completely, although he had a lot of tech, he was completely like non-tech, low-tech. Right. His customer came in through his door. He served them a real product. He took their money and all right. sorts. Of, and sometimes that's the, that's the best kind of insight. It's, it's about money coming in, money going out. And it's about people. And it's about mm. how you communicate to those people. And that coffee shop 
chain entrepreneur was fantastic value in amongst all of the tech entrepreneurs because they wow. are just dealing with with people and money coming in and out and how to communicate to people it's the same mm. thing so that's why we've never themed them and that's why that's when it suddenly clicked and it was like okay there's the evidence we have all these diverse people and diverse businesses and that's where the magic is because if you're running a SaaS company actually what going and talking to a guy that runs a chain of coffee shops is probably the best thing you can do and there is a geographic limitation that comes with uh, organizing these dinners so how were you able to expand it to 45 cities well we we done one a month for the first few months and we started in december 2011 and we were at about june or july 2012 so we've right. done a we've done seven or eight yeah and absolutely loved it i mean it was great one a month one a month was fine it helped with the day job it allowed us to go to dinner with some fascinating and remarkable people in early 2012 like the employee number 1 in europe for uber came along who he was setting up because they were they decided to set up in london i was connected to uh, ryan graves who was the original like ceo and then gm at uber and he i mean what a phenomenal guy he came up to london to figure out whether they should set up in london mm. so okay, i met him and he did a bit of work and all this sort of stuff and then we helped a little bit with their launch to connect them with people in london and connect them particularly with the tech um, wow. tech in london because they were the early adopters of uber in 2012 mm. so those were the kind of people that were starting to come along and it was just fantastic absolutely loved doing nine others so katie and i were having a chat in the summer of 2012 thinking how can we do more of this what is it that what is it that we can do that will help even more right and we knew again going back to the 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 limiting nine others part for us we just wanted to do about one a month in london doing doing one every night was just too much we'd lose quality and mm. then somehow we thought well what about doing them in other cities you know is that a way to scale this thing it was right pretty weird thinking about scaling because it was it was the most offline low tech thing <laughs> to think of you know how right. to people but we did sort of start to think okay what is what does scale look like for nine others and and we were having a chat with someone that I was working with one of the one of the partners at my firm who's a, a wonderful guy and very helpful and inspiring over the years right. and so we were having a chat with him and and then Katie blurted out well let's do 12 cities in the next 12 months then we thought well if there's if there's people like if if there's us in london doing this we sort of we saw and it was kind of an obvious point now we saw that people were people were already obviously doing business in lots of other cities it didn't matter really where you were in the world mm. you could have you could have colleagues in other cities you would have you would have customers in other countries you would have suppliers in other countries it didn't really you had all this kind of uh, crisscrossing of the world anyway we thought wouldn't it be amazing and we knew that people were doing that so we knew that suddenly you know people were traveling to europe or traveling to the states or traveling to asia for business because they had customers or suppliers or colleagues there and we thought wouldn't it be amazing if they could go to another city and they could kind of hit the ground running because they had this connection there they had right. this bit of a network there you know could nine others help with that and that's when we thought right let's do this in another city in another city kitty said let's do 12 in the next 12 months which was a big goal right <laughs> he did and and again it's like how how you think you're going to go about these things versus how it actually happens so in the beginning we thought okay so what are the 12 cities so we made a list of you know 20 cities and right. thought who do we know in these cities that we could maybe ask to do a dinner or see if they were interested and of course the cities were san francisco and new york and singapore all these places that we thought would be would be welcoming to nine others and of course it didn't it didn't turn out that way and how it turned out was you know our challenge at each dinner was hey we want to do this in other cities if someone in another city that might want to host a dinner like we do here please introduce us right. so the network got us there and like someone who came to the london dinner said oh i've got a friend in barcelona she's a fantastic person she i'm sure she'd love to be a host and mm. um, so talk to that person and then somebody else said oh, i've got a friend in uh, sydney uh, maybe you should go maybe you should talk to talk to that person so it yeah. so it kind of spread out like that through the network 
in what really did us a favour back then. The first, the first city that we, the first other city that we hosted it in was was Barcelona. And what did us a big favour was that we were introduced to three people in a row, and they were all in Barcelona. All three people were in Barcelona, so we had a chat. We had a Skype call with with those people, and the first two just didn't get it. They were full of excuses. Barcelona's too big, it's too small, there's too much going on, there's not enough going on, all these different reasons for why it wouldn't work. That really got us down and we were like, oh shit, back to the drawing board. Mm. And then we spoke to the third person and she just didn't really talk about the mechanics of it at all. She was just like, I love the concept, I'll make this happen, I think it'll be really valuable, let's do it. Wow. And that was it. And then that taught us a fantastic lesson that we, the more we tried to sell the concept or sell the mechanics of it, the more it wasn't working or it wasn't going to work. It was Mm. all about the person and whether they were going to do it for the right reasons. Wow. And and it was nothing to do with the city. All the, Mm. all, all three people were in Barcelona. It was nothing to do with the city. It was all to do with the person. So then when we were on, and that was fantastic. So she ran a bunch of them in Barcelona and then we found someone in Berlin and someone in Singapore and all these sorts of places. And we were in, we were in some completely random places. Like we ran, <laughs> one, in, we ran one in Port Moresby in um, Papua New Guinea months before <laughs> we ever ran one in San Francisco. Wow. I think we realized that, okay, we'd love to do one in San Francisco because it's like the mecca of, of tech entrepreneurship. But actually there's loads of stuff going on there. That'll come later. You know, in, in places like we ran them in Karachi, we ran them in Port Moresby, we ran them in all sorts of random places. Right. They, they wanted this community and this, these connections more than anyone else. And we did, so we did those 12 in the next 12 months. We, we got that, we achieved that goal. And some of them are a bit pop-up. So some of them, the, the host in Berlin runs them for a while and then, and then got too busy, so didn't, and then moved to Singapore and ran them for there a bit and all this sort of stuff. One person went to Tehran, ran them there for a while, and then moved somewhere else. So they kind of come and go. But we've always got these connections with those other cities. And it's been, it's just terrific. Right. And it almost runs like a franchise. So uh, what's the revenue structure at this moment? And how many events are you conducting every single month in different cities? It's a bit different now because of COVID. But I mean, last year we were doing, I mean, we do one a month in London. Mm. And last year we were doing a couple a month elsewhere, two or three a month in other cities around the world and how it works for other cities is i suppose it is a bit like a franchise it's like look the more of this sort of stuff the better so if people want to run their dinner or run a networking event fantastic let's right. do it more of this the better if they want to do it in a nine others way which is deliberately small loosely curated the entrepreneurs pay that covers the cost of the dinner and then the format is each person shares a, shares a challenge we try to solve that challenge and then move on to the next person and do the same if people want to do it in that way, then great, do it in, do it in the nine others way. And um, it's not a massive money maker. People are paying last year, the, well, it's all different this year, but we started at about 20 quid for sandwiches after work. Uh, yeah. We got that to a, to a nice dinner with some nice wine and everything, but it was still, it's like between 50 and 60 pounds. So it's, right. a, it's an investment. It's a bit of money, but we do one a month and that pays for the dinner. So we don't make loads of money out of it but that's not the point. So if, if that connects with the right person in, in another city, then great. They can, they can do it with us. Whatever revenue comes in from the dinner, once Eventbrite have taken their cut, the host gets 80% of that. And we just make sure that that covers all of their costs and whatever they want to, want to right. cover. And then a the little bit that we keep back, that helps you know, keep our website going and buys a couple of cups of coffee every now and again. That's it. With nine others, you're hosting one dinner and you're making sure that all these nine people, when they are probably meeting for the first time, they are sharing all their problems. How do you make sure of that? Take us, take us to the process of that entire dinner. I mean, that's a good point. And it's something that we've thought about a lot. And I think it's really you, you set the rules. You set the rules of the game. Mm. And you do, you do that up front. And... Uh, and everyone is different. So every person is different. Every dinner is different. So sometimes people are sharing the kind of mundane day-to-day stuff, which, they, which they're grappling with. And that's fantastic. But yeah, you set the rules up front. And I think one of the interesting things is 
possibly i don't know i haven't really dug into the evidence for this but sort of it's my my assumption that is people are paying for this so it's not it's not a lot okay. of money but it is a bit of money right so i think when people are paying for it they are they're a they're a step in already whereas if you come along to a free event and mm. there are strangers there you're kind of wondering why these people are there and right. maybe it's, maybe it's subconscious but if you're coming along to an event and like you don't maybe don't realize it but like you've paid so everyone else has paid so it's like you're already taking a leap together right yeah it's a kind of a filtering mechanism and i, I think that's that's what we had since the start because it just made sense we were like look we're gonna have to pay for this dinner somehow do we get the attendees to pay or do we run around trying to get sponsors to pay and for that kind of small curated intimate dinner where you are going to talk about problems and challenges and try to help people yeah we didn't want people that were just there for a freebie it was always just so intuitive to us and connected with us to have people pay that's what we've done. We've never given discounts. If you want a discount, you get in for earlier for the next dinner. That's where the lower prices are. So I think that's one thing. People, have already, people are already in there. But then, you, yeah, but then once they're in, then you set the rules and you say, this is how it's going to run. And right. uh, each person's going to share a challenge. You know, it's Chatham House rules, so people only share what they're comfortable sharing. Mm. But people, people have to respect the confidentiality of the of the people around the table and then each person i'm all for one of the main things with me in general is that each person has to make their own decision so whatever they i I can't tell anybody what to share or how much to share or whether they share some deep intimate challenge that they've got or something Mm -hmm. just more on the surface it's up to them and some people do some people don't and we've had people in tears we've had people really wrangling with some with some life-changing decisions well it's been, it's, it's remarkable. And sometimes what happens is people say, oh, I've got, I, I've got this problem. I don't know whether to do this or this. And you dig into that a bit. And actually that problem that they've stated is just a bit of a mask. It's a bit of an excuse for mm. not going deeper. And it's often quite challenging, but then somebody in the room, or if I recognize it, I might, or someone else in the room says, are you sure that's your challenge? Are you not, are you not just, are you not just masking your challenge you're avoiding the deeper challenge with this uh, mask. Right. And then you, that, you get into that other one and it's like, holy shit, yeah, that really is the problem. And look, we don't come up with all the solutions. It's not a magic wand. But what we want to do and what I try to do is just to help people think and help them decide. Talk to us about some of the most, say, inspiring or amazing founders you have got to know through Nine Others. So many. I mean, I've, I've hosted... I've hosted, how many have I hosted? Probably about, I don't know, a couple of hundred, 250 events. We do the regular Nine Others dinners, but then there are some, some off the radar stuff as well that we do, right. um, which is great. I don't know, some of the inspiring ones. Well, I mean, I mentioned the early, the, the Uber people mm. that, that I was connected with in, in the spring of 2012. Ryan Graves never actually came to a Nine Others dinner I went to the I went to the Uber launch lunch and the Uber launch dinner when they when they did it when they did launch and he was he was at those obviously and Travis was and all that kind of stuff. So I mean they were just a remarkable team. Some of the early uh, employees who were actually on the ground for mm. months and months uh, launching Uber. You know, there's a guy called Sam. There's someone called Deval. I, I dare to say they've since become friends and and very inspiring and fantastic people that I still talk to. So that was, I mean, they were incredible, incredible workers, incredible hustle, <laughs> doing, doing something quite, quite different. You know, that was, that was 2011, 2012, they came to London. It was, mm. it was a remarkable thing to look on your phone and to see this Uber coming around the corner, get into this S-class Mercedes, you're whisked away to, your, to wherever you're going, and then the driver gets out, opens the door, lets you out, and you just wander off. I mean, it was just, it was like absolutely like being a VIP. And, and, you know, the team behind that were obviously phenomenal. Right. Uh, it's those, those sorts of people. Asmat, the founder of CityMapper, came along in the early days. That's gone on. That's gone on to grow enormously. I never got the bus before CityMapper in London. <laughs> which bus to get. But CityMapper yeah. made it possible for me to get the bus. 
There's another guy called Chris Sheldrick who started What Three Words, and that's been right. around in the press an awful lot. He came to a couple of dinners in, in a row in, when they launched in the, in the summer of 2013, so about seven years ago. Hmm. They, launched, uh, they launched What Three Words, and it was pretty crazy. It's a pretty crazy idea, but now it's, it's gone from the obscure to the obvious. What's the idea? So well, what they've done, so what three words, it, it's addressing infrastructure. So it's becoming a new standard of addressing. And what they've done is they've split the world up into trillions of three meter by three meter squares. Okay. Mm. So each three meter by three meter square on anywhere on the world can be identified by three ordinary words. Okay. Okay. So their first HQ was index home raft. Okay. That goes, that goes to their front door of their first HQ. They've since moved and I just can't remember what the next one is. But index home raft was their, was their HQ. My office here is phones, margin, spirit. So it's oh. three, three words. Okay. So you go to whatthreewords.com slash phone, margin, spirit. That's my house. So <laughs> it's, but it's a bit of a wacky idea because <laughs> you think in the UK, well, you've got postcodes, you've got house numbers. Why do, we need, why do we need a different addressing standard? Right. Uh, actually, in London, when you've got a postcode and a, and a number, it's pretty useful having just three words because they're more memorable and it's more accurate. But then you start to imagine what it is like in countries and in cities where there is no addressing infrastructure. Since, since they started in 2013, they've done deals in, in uh, Mongolia, and in Brazil, and wow. all these places where in a very digital world, these people were kind of off the grid because they didn't have an address. Right. The ones of Brazil, you kind of know where you're going in these alleyways and you go left here and right there. Yeah. But they don't have a physical address. So what, what Three Words has been able to give them is a, is a physical address in this digital world. So that was a completely obscure technical challenge that Chris and his team, Chris and Jack and the rest of the team kind of brought to life. Where they've, got, where they've got a bit more, they've got a lot of press and a lot of recognition recently is that the, the emergency callers that on the 999 calls in the UK, plus many other emergency services around the world, have started using what three words. And my okay. brother used it and my friends used it. I was talking to someone a couple of weeks ago who's, who's used it. You come across a car accident or someone has an accident or whatever, and you're in the middle of nowhere, especially if you're in a place that you don't know, you can't give the address. Hmm. What you can do is you can look up on your phone and you can tell the 999 operator, you can tell them the three words that you see on the screen. Okay. And then they know exactly where you are. And they wow. Say, that, is, that is true life-saving. Right. Now. Yeah, on the surface, it doesn't come across as such an important thing. Yeah. Interesting. And I want to take a step back and talk about your childhood. What was it like? My childhood, blimey. <laughs> I grew up on a farm in the middle of nowhere in Northumberland. Oh. So my, my, my father was a farmer. His father was. His father was. For generations, we... Okay. Uh, in farming in Northumberland. I grew, up on, I grew up on one farm that my cousin still runs. That was about a thousand, that's about a thousand acres up in the Northeast. Mm. When I was nine years old, we bought another one a few miles to the West. That was about 250 acres. Because the tradition was, or tradition seems to be, is generations are in farming. So the, the eldest son stays at the home farm, the original farm. Okay. The youngest son gets another farm and then his eldest son stays on that farm and then their young, youngest son oh. and off it goes. However, myself and my brother didn't want to be farmers. That was never going to get past us. I, I mean, I grew up, it was, it was fantastic. A wonderful place to grow up, beautiful part of the world. I still got family up there, still got family and farming up there. Yeah, it was great. Interesting. And uh, you went to college, you took a computer science degree. What made you start a t-shirt company? Well, I did think, no, I did things a bit back to front. So I did the t-shirt company before the computer science degree. Oh, is that so? Yeah. So were you in school or were you in college when you started the t-shirt company? Um, no, neither. I, so I left school. I didn't go to university the first time round. 
I messed okay. around. I didn't, I didn't work very hard at school, so I didn't get very good A-level results. Mm. So I went to work for John Lewis, the retailer, right. on, their, you know, on their A-level management training thing. So I did that for a couple of years and uh, it was good. It was a good solid grounding of, of work. And it was from there that I, I left there to start a t-shirt company. Cool. And what made I, you do that? I think I just wanted to have my own business. I wanted to just do things for myself. And gosh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. What else made me do it? I was working at John Lewis. It was pretty poorly paid. I wasn't earning very much money. Right. At school, I had a couple of side hustles that made extra money. Right. I just wanted to do that. I just didn't want what to What was that? Me. I used to, this is a long time ago because I'm mm. old. <laughs> my, my family was one of the only, was the, was the only one to have Sky TV. When Sky TV first came in, in the 90s, okay. uh, we had Sky TV, which was great. Yeah. Uh, so I used to record, I used to record programs on video and then I'd rent them out to my school friends. Wow. <laughs> Very interesting. Uh, I did that. And I mean, I had a Saturday job as well. So I got a bit from that. And yeah, I don't know, working at John Lewis, I was there for about two years. It was great. It was a great grounding. Hmm. But I just, I just didn't want to work for someone else anymore. There were, there were smart people working there. It was great, but it just wasn't, wasn't what I wanted to do forever. Right. And did you start the company alone or were there other partners with you? I started it, that t-shirt company. Yeah, I started it with, here was, here was a big life lesson. I started it with one other person from John Lewis. So we bought an embroidery machine, which is mm -hmm. like a sewing machine, but it embroiders logos, okay. letters and things. And we thought, okay, so we can have, we can, eventually we can have our own brand, you know, our own brand of t-shirts, which would be amazing. Yeah. But then in the meantime, we could embroider logos for, for other firms, like this sort of thing we could do, which was, which was great. So we both resigned, we bought the machine, we tested it out, we found a, fr a friend of mine worked on an industrial park in North London. So we, we found a little unit that we could have there to work from. We resigned, we left, we started up. And the guy that I did this with, he, he lasted a couple of weeks. Oh. It was, which was really disappointing because we planned this for six or seven months beforehand. But you just couldn't hack it. We had, had no money. We had no customers. We had to get out there and, and sell and make it happen. Mm. And it was, just, it was just too stressful. It was just too much. But you never know these things till you do them sometimes. And right. like I said earlier, I'm all for people making their own decisions. I'm not going to tell people what to do. Mm. So he didn't want to continue. So that's fine. So, but I, after, a, after a couple of weeks, I felt that I'd not even started. So I had to have a go. So I carried on and I had a go and I tried to make it work. How did you uh, reach out to your customers? Uh, one by one, very manually. I got, a, I got a stack of, this is before the internet really, I got a stack of uh, yellow pages, the phone books. Yeah. And I just, I wrote to a hundred people every day. A hundred people every day? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think it was a hundred people every day. My friend who, who, who also worked in the same business park, he ran a, he, he bought and sold secondhand photocopiers. So I'd photocopy okay. about the letters and then I'd address them. <laughs> and it was all from these yellow pages. So I'd, I'd go through and I'd just find 20 companies in one sector, 20 companies in another, 20 companies in another. And I'd write to them saying, hey, we're a, we're a branding, I don't know, put your logo on a t-shirt company. Okay. Um, if they wanted that sort of thing for their staff or to sell to customers, we could do it. Mm. And, um, and I started getting a bit of traction with pubs and cause they wanted them for their staff. They wanted them sometimes wanted them for their customers. So then I narrowed it in and just, just focused on pubs because every yellow pages in London and the surrounding areas has it's, it's divided into sections and then there's like pubs and restaurants section. So instead of writing 20 to those and 20 to plumbers and 20 to builders and 20 to all sorts of <laughs> I just focused on the pubs. It worked out fine. It was great. So I ran that for another year or so on my own. And it got to the point, I mean, I, I, got, it, I got it through the year. It was fine. Some days I'd have loads of money. Some days I'd have none. Some, <laughs> some, 
some weeks, you know, you're writing, writing all these letters and nothing's coming back. It's so demoralizing. It's, it's awful. Um, but then one, then one big order comes in and I remember one big order came in for, I don't know, 50 t-shirts or something, man, I thought I'd won the lottery, deliver those t-shirts and I get the money and I just laid the money out on this table. And I remember taking a photograph of all these 20 pound. Wow. <laughs> and it was, it was brilliant. Huge highs and lows of that. But then I, after doing it for a year or so in a, in a, in a basement room with no windows and no heating and a bit of damp, I had to decide whether I was going to. I was going to stick with this or I was going to, I'd have to take on, I'd have to get some money to make it grow. So did I want to take on some debt to, to get a better machine to make that grow and all that sort of stuff hmm. or, or just take a, take a break from it because it was pretty demoralizing stuff some of the time. So I took a break and I quit and I shut it down. Okay. And what did you do after that? For a few months, I went back into retail. So I went and managed a, managed a store in North London because that's, that was my background through John Lewis. So that was mm. fairly easy to get. And then whilst I was there, a friend of mine had managed to get a job in the IT department of RBS. Yeah. And this was, this was 1999. Mm. And the Y2, Y2K bug was looming. <laughs> and they were just hiring everybody and anybody to try and patch up and fix this Y2K bug. <laughs> so my school friend who was, who had started working there managed, managed to persuade his boss to give me an interview because <laughs> uh, I, you know, I wasn't very happy in retail. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I went and chatted to his boss and somehow they talked my way in and he took a chance on me and I started working in a department of RBS shipping software. So I stayed there for a while. That little bit of, the, of RBS was taken over by the Bank of New York. So I started working for the Bank of New York. I'd moved into the consulting team. So I was like facing off to, to fund managers who were our clients. You know, big, right. It'd be called FinTech now, but it wasn't then. I'm facing off to big fund managers as, as the consultant, fixing things and testing things and breaking things. But a friend of mine had, had done an MBA and I had given his career a real boost so I thought, okay, I'll go, I'll go study at business school. So I did that for two years, part-time whilst working at one of these software companies. I mean, that's where I discovered venture capital and more about startups. Right. And it was in there that I started a few side hustles, nothing, nothing fantastic, but I'd started, I started trying buying and selling stuff. I saw stuff on Alibaba. I tried buying that. And selling oh, it. I tried that as well. <laughs> yeah, I think everybody should. And it's a bit like t-shirt business. Everyone should have a t-shirt. Actually, I did start a t-shirt business with Alibaba. This was two years back. I used Shopify. <laughs> Everybody should. You know, the, I sometimes go back and mentor at, at business school and, and they have hackathons and they have mentoring and all this kind of stuff. Right. And a lot of the time, all of, these, all of these smart business school students are trying to come up with some wonderful app or some wonderful website that's different. And it's just, I don't know, I, I, think, it's, I think it's just a nonsense because there's excuse after excuse for not actually doing anything like they can come up with an app idea and they say oh we can't make the app because we're not technical but if we did have this app it would do xyz and we've surveyed a hundred people and they would like xyz so therefore it's going to be great oh, it's a mask yeah again it's just a mask so what i try to encourage um the business schools to do is is to get the students to do a real business with a physical product sell t-shirts, get stuff from Alibaba and sell that, make cakes, sell those. They will learn way more by doing that right. than, they will, than they will sort of pontificating about an app. So you're right and to do a t-shirt business. Everybody should. And Alibaba, everybody should do that. But, and, then, and then I got the job at the, at the investor that, did the, that also did the government program. And at some point in the middle of this, you hosted a YC event. I thought it was an interesting story how you managed to bring in 500 people within a span of maybe two weeks or something. So tell us that story. Yeah. So that was in, so in the summer of 2011. So this is before Nine Others. I was working for this investor. We were doing, I was networking like crazy. We were doing these uh, workshops and this mentoring and all this kind of stuff in the, in the early stage London tech scene. I noticed that YC were doing an event in New York and it was YC NYC. It was, it was an event. It was come along, get beer and pizza. Some of the YC partners will be there. You know, PG will be there. He'll talk on stage. 
some of the alumni might be there and it's a chance to find out a bit more about YC. Right. Which was pretty, what's the right word? It was pretty unusual. It was the first time that they'd done such a thing. Originally, of course, they were in Boston, but pretty quickly they moved to San Francisco and then it was all about San Francisco. Every team had to go there to interview. If you got a place, you had to go there to be part of the program. So I saw that and I thought, right, if they're doing that, what they should do is they should come over to London and do one in London. So I thought that was a good idea. <laughs> and there was an event um, series in London called Hacker News after the mm. YC Hacker News. So it was HN London. Okay. And I said to the guy that ran that, because I'd been to a few of these events, I'm like, hey, look, they're coming to New York. They should come to London. Surely you can make this happen. This, this should, this sh- it should be something that exists, right? Right. And he thought, oh, crikey, that'd be amazing. But it would be really complicated. I don't think they'd, be, they'd do it. So I wrote on Hacker News to hang on before that. So yeah, they thought it wouldn't happen. So it was a bit disappointing. It was a bit deflating. And I was chatting, so I chatted to, I was chatting to Katie about it, my nine others, my eventual nine others co-founder. This is in August of 2011. So it's a few months before nine, uh, before nine others. So I was chatting to Katie about it. And she was like, well, you should just do it come on, pull your finger out, get on with it. And it, it was the shove that I really needed. I had this idea and I thought, oh, well, someone else should do that. They'll be better placed for it. But then Katie said, no, you, you can do it. Get on with it. So that night I bought the domain ycldn.com okay. for YC London. I, and I, set, I knew enough about HTML to, to set it up um, and get it hosted and set it up in such a way that it looked just like the NYC one. Okay. <laughs> The, the YC NYC was just like a big Y and then a paragraph underneath about what was going on. Okay. So I set up my YC London one with a big Y and then not and a question mark. So okay. why, not, you know, <laughs> why not come to London? Wow. I got, it, I got it up and up and running on that, that, you know, that Friday night or whatever it was in August. And I just started emailing it to people and set up a Twitter handle and started tweeting it to people. <laughs> I love I, you know, I had nothing. I had absolutely nothing. It was just an idea that they were going to New York on in the September. I thought they should come to London as well. Does anybody, <laughs> does anybody else think that's a good idea? And of course, lots of people did think it was a good idea because this was you know, 2011. People, I mean, nothing like this had happened before. And there was just such a fantastic buzz in the startup <laughs> community in, in London anyway. So to tempt them with the chance of Y Combinator coming to London. I made an email address, I made a Twitter account for YC London and all this sort of stuff and posted on Hacker News to say, look, I think, I think YC should come to London. Does anybody else? I think, and lots of people replied and said how wonderful that would be. That'd be an amazing idea. Come on, let's make this happen. Within a couple of hours, I had a few offers of venues of like places that would host it for free. All we needed was YC to come over. And right. Paul, Graham, Paul Graham replied on the Hacker News thing saying, look, if we did come to Europe, London would be the place we'd come to, but it's too short notice. It, it can't happen, which was disappointing. I wish it... So I just kept hustling and eventually was connected through to Harj Tagar, who was a YC partner, YC alum. And we, we emailed back and forth and he said, well, yeah, okay, I'll come over. <laughs> so it was in it was in no way an official official YC event, but once he once he confirmed and he said okay I'm going to come over, it was just brilliant. And then I I got back in t- touch with the Hacker News London meetup and said look this is they were the right partner to to like host it because they had right. they had a bit of a connection a bit of affinity to YC yeah, uh, and they were just about to move venues to a much bigger venue. And then Harj coming along was fantastic. So we put the tickets up and yeah, I mean, hundreds of people just signed up within a few hours. There was a queue around the block. Thankfully, you know, Harj came, all, Harj came along. We got extra beer and pizza. Uh, it was just crazy. It was Wow. Brilliant. <laughs> and then you started your own investment company. Uh, tell us the story about that. So I'd been doing Nine Others for a few years and meeting some amazing startups and some amazing founders and knew some investors and through in amongst that I'd done a bit of ad hoc connections between investor and startup and lots of that lots of that for nothing didn't want anything back just wanted to foster the community 
And then I, I did something a bit more formal with one investor who was looking to invest in a particular type of startup, particular group of startups. We did that. So he'd invest some money. I'd, I'd find the startups, yeah. filter them through, take them to see him. He would invest a bit of money if he liked them, his decision, take some equity, and then he would share some of that equity with me. So that was great. Mm. Started building up a little bit of, I don't know, advisor shares or helper shares in some of these startups. And that's what I always wanted to do. Since I started working for the, for the investor back in 2010, I always wanted to have my own, my own investment company. That's what was sparked back at business school, this world of venture capital where you can have little shares in lots of different companies. Fascinating because some of those will go absolutely stratospheric. And I always just wanted to have my own. And then I'd done, so I'd done nine others, built this big community of entrepreneurs, done a bit of ad hoc matchmaking. Um, yeah. All good. And then in 2016, was introduced to uh, a guy from Malaysia who wanted to do some investing in London. He'd seen fintech, he'd seen London kind of booming in the startup world. Right. He'd, been, he'd made a bit of money and wanted to do some investing. So who should he talk to? And a friend of mine said, he should come and talk to me. So we had a chat and we got on. And uh, so he decided, we, just, we decided to start a new company. So we started the Dot Matrix group. I started that with a friend of mine. Yeah. Well, Cash. So me and him run that. And it was originally this one investor's money. So we have two funds that are fully deployed of that investor's mm-hmm. money. And that was our first few, few investments. And it was in doing that that we thought, okay, we were at the stage where we wanted to put a little bit of our money into these companies. I mean, I call it pay-as-you-go investing. I have not had some sort of massive exit, unfortunately. I've not got a big pile of money. But yeah. if, I've got, if I've got spare money every now and again, I do, I don't know, three or four investments each year, sometimes five. Oh, yeah. Um, of small bits of money that I can afford. So I was starting to get to the stage in 2017, 2018 that I wanted to do that. So we thought, well, we've done this matchmaking with one person's investment. Let's see if we can do that with more. Raising a fund can take years and you've got to support yourself while you do it. And I thought, well, what about a syndicate? You know, syndicates are nothing new, but they're typically pretty um, informal, ad hoc, and not sort of managed or run. So I thought, well, maybe we could do that. So we spent many months, nine or 10 months, trying to set up this syndicate, which is what the Dot Matrix group is now. And that's a case of typically, I meet the startups through nine others, we get to know them, we help them out, sometimes for months, sometimes for many years. You know, I'll continue to, to help as many people as I can. But occasionally, after knowing them for a year or two, a startup might do an investment round. And because I've been able to see how they conduct themselves, how they operate, how they execute, I might want to put a little bit of my money in. And hopefully, because I've been helpful, they will be open to that as well. Mm-hmm. So if they are, then we'll do some diligence on that, on that startup and we'll show that to the rest of the syndicate. And then the syndicate members for themselves can, inve- can decide whether they want to invest or not. And we're up to 70-odd syndicate members now. And we wrap it all up in one one investment we put it under a nominee that's what invests in the company and then we we continue to try and help out right and what is the most important trait that you look for in founders the most important trait or say a number of important traits that you look for in founders i mean the most critical thing really is 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 the 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 founder product fit or the founder company fit so why is that person doing what they're doing it's like with nine others, I do one dinner a month and they happen around the world and that's great. Mm. People have tried to persuade me to run more dinners every day of the week with lots of people and turn nine others into some sort of subscription network community thing. And that just doesn't work for me. Someone will go make that successful, but it's not me. So it's a case of figuring out why the person is doing what they're doing. It's got to be congruent with their values their mission their personality and all that kind of stuff that's what i that's what i try to figure out and that can take a long time because often people think that often people do things but the reasons that the reasons they're doing something isn't quite clear and you seem to have read a lot of books so what are your favorite books there's a few that i've read again and again one of the most well known is is zero to one by peter thiel that a few times 
One of the best for how I think about investing in the startup world mm-hmm. is is written by a the complete opposite to a startup investor, someone called Guy Spear, who wrote a book, The Education of a Value Investor. And he and a value investor is like Warren Buffett. Mm-hmm. And um, Guy was was very much inspired by Warren Buffett and his original partnership model. So set up his own firm to try and emulate that and then wrote a book, The Education of a Value Investor, which is fantastic. I've read that a number of times as well. And it's, yeah. and that's really been helpful in terms of how I think about startup investing. Because people think about startup investing, you've got to you know see a company, you've got to decide quickly, um, otherwise it's gone and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And it's just, it's got to, have your principles, have your values, you know, take your time, be patient and it'll, it'll come good. Anything Seth Godin writes is good. A recent, very, very good one, which is quite a new book is, is by Richard Koch, which is the 80, 20 um, principle book. Is that? Yeah. The 80, yeah. well, the 80, 20 principle is, is his most famous and uh, fantastic book, but he's written one recently about unreasonable success and how yeah. to get it. And it yeah. is brilliant. It is so good. I, um, I think you interviewed him maybe a few weeks back. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I met him a couple of years ago in, and uh, yeah, interviewed him a few weeks ago. And what is the story with your newsletter and podcast? Yeah. So I write about angel investing. I interview an angel investor, a short, a short interview, a bit of Q&A. Because what I want people to realize is that like me, you don't have to have some massive exit to be an angel investor. You can get going. It is ordinary people investing their ordinary money into right. startups. So I want to help people understand that they can do that probably before they think they can, if mm. that's something that they want to do. I very much believe that last, the last decade, the 2010s, was the decade of the entrepreneur. I saw this from 2010 to 2019. It was, it was entrepreneurship was a, a wave and it was massive and it's wonderful. The more people do it, the better. And that can, that can continue and that's great. I think the 2020s is going to be the decade of the angel investor. So people okay. are going to understand that actually they can be angel investing in some of these startups. And they don't have to start them themselves, but with bits of money as they go, they can become angel investors. And if you, if, if, if like me, you can pay as you go, and if you, you know, especially if you have, you know, a reasonably well-paid job, I know it's not for everyone, but if you've got a reasonably well-paid job, can you yeah. carve out 10, 20, 30 K per year to invest in startups? Right. Yeah. If you can do that and you, you invest in three or four each year, then after three or four years, you've got a great little portfolio there. Right. Yeah. And the next question is from Tim Ferriss' podcast. If you had to choose one person who, according to your metric, is successful, who would that be? Chris Sacker. I mean, he's, he's probably the original inspiration for me. He went on, he went on Jason Calacanis' podcast. It was like the, the summer, autumn of 2012. And I still watch it a few times every year. Yeah. Episode 91. And... Uh, the story he tells just just really clicks with me and and how I want to how I want to be an investor and how I want to try and help people it's about building relationships it's about being helpful it's about continuing to do that and then the good stuff will come back at the beginning with nine others it was a case of a lot of the people you know, I don't wanna, I don't want to dump on anyone but it's like a lot of the time in those early days people did not do introductions did not do connections Mm. because they thought well if i introduce this person to this person they might go do something i will miss out so i'm not Uh, doing that consciously or otherwise that's kind of how people thought about things back then right i just thought with with nine others if i do these connections i will definitely miss out but if i keep doing them i'll build some goodwill and some good relationships at some point what it might come back Wow. Yeah. And I think that's more in line with Sakar as well. It's like, it's just be helpful. If you can be known as a helpful person, that's brilliant. It's good for the soul. And <laughs> um, eventually it'll, it'll come back and it'll reward you. It doesn't, even if it doesn't, it's good for the soul in the meantime. 
Yeah. And I think that is how he went to work for Google. The parallel I find between your story and his story is that both of you hustle a lot. Even if you don't have a lot of basic knowledge about that area, you try to be creative with things. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I just, I just always think a bit like the YC thing. That was pivotal for me doing that YC event. Yeah. It was massive because it was like, I came up with an idea. I thought other people would be better placed to do it, but then they didn't think so. So then, you know, I got a grip of myself and thought, no, I'll do it instead. And it came, it came off and it was massive, massive success Yeah, in a very short space of time. So that taught me an awful lot and that was pretty good. And it might've crashed and burned, but I thought it was a good idea. So I was willing to give it a shot. Right. And if you had to give some advice to the listeners of this podcast, they are usually in the early to late twenties. What advice would you give to such young entrepreneurs? Think about how you can contribute. Everyone can contribute something. So go at it with that mindset. Go at it with the giver's mindset rather than what you can take. I get it. I get a lot of approaches and I'm sure we all do on LinkedIn and Twitter and elsewhere about, oh, can you just give me this? Can you just give me that? Yeah. The best, the best ones are people that want to contribute and help and not in a rush and not asking for anything in return. And it's in that way, if you've got that mindset, that is how you build up goodwill in your network. And then right. you, build up your net, you build up your network before you really need it. And if you keep doing that and you're building up goodwill in your network and you're generally, like we said before, known as a helpful person, then it's just wonderful. Yeah. And eventually what you might be able to ask for something back. That's how I got Richard on my podcast. That's how I get emails back and forth from all sorts of amazing people. You're just a nice, I don't know, just try to be nice and try to contribute. Right. Yeah. And the last question would be if people want to connect with you, what would be the best place to do that? Uh, Twitter is the best place. Cool. <laughs> Thank you so much. Long, long on Twitter. I, I love Twitter. <laughs> I think it's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for doing this, Matthew. This was awesome. Loved it.